I don't believe in the science of DNA. These are the words of a sadistic serial killer who was conclusively linked to 13 cold cases. In the infamous 2018 interview with journalist Piers Morgan, Lorenzo Gilliard Jr. claimed that despite being genetically linked to and convicted of 13 murders, he never knew the woman he was accused of attacking and that he didn't believe in the science used to convict him. What spanned a life of violent crime that began in 1969, the man known as the Kansas City Strangler had the audacity to sit there and claim his innocence. While this story was supposed to be put to end with his convictions in 2007, to this day, Gilliard maintains his lies of innocence and continues his torture while the families of 13 women fight to grapple with their loss in this horrific story. I'm your host, SJ, and this is Mid-Death. All the victims have several things in common. All were found dead during the same one and a half year period. All were left in secluded or obstructed locations. All were strangled. All showed signs that they were involved in a struggle. All were missing their shoes. And all but one showed distinct signs of sexual intercourse, said prosecution attorney Jim Knatzer in opening statements to the court. 13 women. 13 women who were, like the prosecutor says, found strangled in secluded locations with signs of a struggle, missing their shoes, and showing signs of sexual intercourse. Also known as rape, if we're just going with the likeliest occurrence by this description of blatant violence. So how exactly did this crime happen 13 separate times to 13 different women? One man. Lorenzo was by no means a saint. In fact, before his conviction in 2007, Lorenzo spanned a life of violent and sexual crimes for 20 years. Two decades, he eluded charges, made deals, and wiggled his way out of everything police threw at him. Now, the stories I tell are always and will always be about the victims. However, to understand how these women became victims at the hands of this monster, we truly have to dive into his past. Born in May 1950 in Kansas City, Missouri, Lorenzo was one of five children. From the very beginning, he showed signs of aggression, and he quickly garnered himself a reputation as a bully. He was a terrible student, and soon after the start of the 10th grade, he actually dropped out. At just 18 years old, he married his first wife after the couple learned they were pregnant with their first child. He would go on to have 11 kids with several women during his life of crime. However, it almost seems as though his first marriage and birth of his child triggered his need to commit violent crimes to begin with. Because just one year after his wedding, in January of 1969, Lorenzo was arrested for the assault and rape of a girl he knew at the time. However, a deal was made and he was ordered to apologize to the victim. And with that, the victim recanted her statement to the police. The following year in 1970, his own father was convicted of rape, so clearly the apple does not fall far from the tree. And that was just the beginning. 
Two years later, in 1972, Lorenzo was arrested for the rape and assault of another woman. This was only the second time that he was known to commit a rape, but already he was escalating. The victim told police that he choked her until she was completely unconscious. She went on to identify him in a police lineup, but over time, her testimony was considered questionable and the charges were later dropped altogether. The next year in 1973, he was arrested for assaulting his wife. She told the police that he had been abusive both sexually and physically their entire marriage. But as a result, he was only ordered to pay a fine and to divorce his wife. That's all. For assault, they have him pay a fine and he divorces his wife. This is my main problem with this story and this theme will continue. The next year in February of 1974, he was arrested for the rape of a 25-year-old exotic dancer. But once again, even though he was identified in a photo lineup and the victim even identified his Chevy convertible, the charges were later dropped when both parties reached an agreement. Five months later, he was arrested for the rape of a 13-year-old family friend on the banks of the Missouri River. He was charged with rape and brutally beating the child. Yet another deal led Gilliard to plead guilty to molestation, and he was only sentenced to nine months in the Jackson County Jail for this crime. After his release, he married his second wife, but soon after, she filed for divorce, citing physical and sexual abuse very similar to his first wife. In the late 1970s, he then married his third wife. Now, things were quiet for a bit, but not for long. Five years later, in 1979, he was arrested again for assaulting a young couple. He threatened a man at gunpoint and raped that man's fiancée. Both victims identified him in a police lineup, and hairs of the male victim were also found in the building where Lorenzo had been working as a maintenance man. But in September of 1980, due to lack of evidence, he was acquitted by a jury. A few months later, he was arrested for aggravated assault for threatening to shoot his third wife. But once again, he was only ordered to pay a fine and divorce his wife. Exactly one year after being acquitted for the assault on the young couple, in February of 1981, he attacked his wife on two separate occasions. And I want to be clear, this is not the same wife he threatened to shoot. This is another wife. In the first incident, he pistol whipped her so hard he knocked out her two front teeth. In the second incident, he stabbed her in the hand with an ice pick. He was arrested and charged with third degree assault. I still do not understand how he was not charged with first degree assault. Third degree means you knowingly caused harm to another person. First degree is where you cause serious bodily injury and it usually involves a deadly weapon. Kind of like pistol whipping someone so hard that their teeth fall out. Nonetheless, he was let go on a suspended sentence and probation. Later that year in November of 1981, he was arrested yet again. This time for theft, but he was subsequently released on a $3,500 bail. It was finally later that spring when Lorenzo received his first real prison sentence. He received a four-year prison sentence for violating his probation by committing second-degree burglary. Now, obviously, this is a serious crime. 
not quite as serious as violent rape and assault. However, at this point, like I have to imagine police were just glad to get this man on something. He began serving his sentence on May 17, 1982, which was exactly eight days after the body of Margaret Miller was found. And police were already considering Lorenzo a suspect. They just did not have the evidence at the time to make an arrest. He was released on parole on January 10, 1983, not even a year into that four-year sentence. He was later returned to prison after violating the terms of his release by um, making bomb threats. Yes, actual bomb threats. Like this, this guy is doing it all. At the time, he was arrested in Kansas for the threats, but then released again in late 1985. So at this point, the longest sentence he's even served is for making these threats, not the staggering number of rapes, assaults, thefts, and burglaries he had already committed. After his release in 1986, this is when he gets a job as a trashman at the same place where his father is working, you know, his convicted rapist of a father. Yeah, so they're working at the same place. And Lorenzo quickly works his way up in the trash business. For some reason, he's referred to as reliable, friendly, helpful, etc. by virtually everyone the police interviewed at the time. He was also married during this time, and from all the research I've gathered, this somehow, some way seems to be an okay marriage. The marriage lasted nearly 10 years, and that's not to say he was an angel. I mean, I've given you his history, but for some reason, the marriage comes off as copacetic during this time. I can't find any actual complaints. But ever the violent creature of habit, he continued down his dark path. Because on December 23rd, 1987, he was arrested and interrogated in the murder of 36-year-old Sheila Ingold. Though he was subsequently released, again due to lack of evidence, it was actually during this interrogation when Lorenzo would finally give the police the evidence they would need to take him down. No one could have known the power it held at the time, but he ended up giving police blood samples during their investigation. Now, he remained out of immediate trouble for the next two years, but in March of 1989, he found himself right back in police sights. The story goes that one night he's helping a neighbor load a bike into her car. He invites her inside for dinner and she accepts. Now, according to court records, after three or four glasses of wine, he reached across the table and began pulling at her blouse. Now, she immediately tried to back away and she found herself trapped in the back of his studio apartment. The woman fell on the bed and to her horror, Lorenzo began straddling her and attacking her. I'll spare you the details, but during the attack, the victim claimed that Lorenzo kept threatening to kill himself, holding a knife both to his neck and hers. To her shock, he let her go once the attack was over and she ran out of there and immediately called 911. She told the police everything that happened and he was subsequently charged with forcible sodomy, sexual abuse, and assault. But terrified, the victim stated that she did not want her mental health history or the fact that she had a few drinks before the incident discussed in open court for everyone to judge. So once again, a deal was made with Lorenzo and on October 30th, 1989, he pled guilty to all charges except the sodomy charge. The terms of the deal did not mean jail time, unfortunately. They meant that with his plea, he would be placed on probation for three years, and he was also required to get counseling for sexual abuse and anger management. 
To no one's surprise, Lorenzo did not learn his lesson, and he had another criminal incident with yet another neighbor. In September of 1995, he approached his neighbor and began describing intimate details about her and her life. She started to fear that he was actually stalking her. For months, he made unwanted sexual advances towards her, sexually assaulted her, and continued to stalk her. To protect herself, the woman filed for a restraining order and ultimately left town. During all of these years of Gilliard's violent rampage throughout the Kansas City area, bodies of women who had been strangled were being found. Now, at this point, police were not even able to conclusively link all of these cases together. Due to the high-risk lifestyle the majority of these women were leading at the time, many of these cases had several suspects and leads that just weren't going anywhere. The majority of the cases were considered cold at this point. That is, until 2001, when the Kansas City Police Department received a multi-million dollar federal grant aimed at re-examining cold cases using DNA technology. So uh, remember that blood sample that he gave up all those years back? Yeah, well, it sat preserved in a crime lab and it was finally time for it to make a difference. In early April of 2004, Lorenzo's DNA was matched to 12 women who had all been murdered by strangulation. The police immediately began following him while everything was being prepared to finally convict him. And on April 16, 2004, the day of justice had finally come for those women and their families. Lorenzo was arrested at a Northland Denny's and held without bail on 10 counts of first-degree murder and two capital murders. He pled not guilty to no one's surprise. I struggle with the next part of this story because at this point, Lorenzo had gotten away with crime after crime. I mean, I told you his first known crime was back in 1969. It's now 2004 and we are just barely talking about arresting him. And yet, like in so many of his earlier crimes, a deal was cut. In January of 2007, Lorenzo's attorney negotiated a deal with the Jackson County Attorney's Office. In exchange for dropping the death penalty, because remember, he's up for two capital murders at this point, which both carry a sentence of death, at least here. Lorenzo had agreed to a trial without jury. Again, I struggle with the deal part. However, I can see where the prosecution might jump at this. Up until this point, no one has even been able to control Lorenzo. He slipped by convictions in every single way, not to mention a jury has already acquitted him before. So I can see the prosecution not wanting to take any chances. I mean, most people would think that the DNA already seals the deal, but that's really only in the case of just a judge, not a jury. I mean, juries are, are flimsy. They can go both ways. Again, he's been acquitted before due to lack of evidence. Like, they don't want to take any chances. So annoying, yes, but Missouri needed a win. And honestly, they needed to lock this monster up by just about any means at this point. So on March 5th, 2007, his trial began. Lorenzo was tried on seven first-degree murder charges. Now, I know that that's a lot less than the 13 counts that I previously brought up. But at this point, the prosecution chose to mainly focus on the DNA evidence that forensic experts felt really indicated that Lorenzo had had sex with these victims around the time that they were killed. And believe me, I know how that sounds. It literally hurts me to say it, but 
Again, the majority of his victims were sex workers. And though anyone with a brain knows that voluntary sex workers have rights, I mean, they are human beings. At this time, I mean, we're talking 2004, very early 2000s, it was a much less common belief. Not to mention that when a victim is dead, signs of sex don't automatically mean rape. Not the same way that it would with a live complaining witness. In many of these cases, it presented as Lorenzo paid a woman for sex and she accepted. After the quote-unquote consensual sex, he then murdered her. Obviously, the closer the sex to the victim, then the more likely it is that Gilliard is the one that committed that murder in the first place. Again, this is speculation at best, but I can see how we got here. Now, throughout the trial, Lorenzo refused to admit guilt. But it was only 12 days into his trial that Lorenzo would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murders of Barry, Kelly, Barnes, Ford, Ingold, and Hibbs. He was unfortunately acquitted for killing Mayhew since only human hair had been found and all of the other victims' semen had been present on the bodies and that just wasn't the case for Mayhew. Not to mention the hair that was found, it ended up being ruled inconclusive. On June 23, 2006, following the result of another DNA test, Lorenzo was charged with an additional murder of 26-year-old Helga Kruger as well. A sigh of relief this had to be for the families. 13 families reeling from these painful crimes. I can't even begin to imagine their pain. The pain of the families of Stacy Swafford, 17, who was last seen on April 10th, 1977. Her body had been found a week later in a vacant lot. Gwendolyn Kizine, 15, who had been found strangled on January 23, 1980. When Gwendolyn was found, her neck and wrist were tightly wrapped with wire. Margaret Miller, 17, who had been found strangled on May 9, 1982. Catherine Berry, whose body was found in an abandoned building on March 14, 1986. Catherine had a stocking wrapped tightly around her neck. Naomi Kelly, 23, who was found strangled in a park on August 16, 1986. Kelly was a student at a business school and a single mother raising two children. Lorenzo killed her using a towel to strangle her, which he left near her body. Deborah Blevins, 32, who had been found strangled on November 27, 1986. Her completely nude body was found in bushes next to a church. Anne Barnes, 36, who was found strangled near the city center on April 17, 1987. Kelly Ford, 20, who was found strangled on June 9, 1987. Her nearly completely naked body was found dumped at the edge of a cliff. Sheila Ingold, 36, who was found strangled near a Kansas City auto shop. Lorenzo had also stolen two rings off Ingold's dead body. Carmeline Hibbs, 30, 
who was found strangled on December 19, 1987. Her partially nude body was found in the parking lot of an apartment building. Connie Luther, 29, who was found strangled on January 11, 1993. Connie was found with a noose made of lace tied around her neck. And Helga Kruger, 26, who was found strangled with a towel in February of 1989. Kruger was an Austrian immigrant. These are the women that Lorenzo violated and stole their lives. Women that society had deemed prostitutes at the time. These women and girls were so much more than that. I don't even have to say that his victims who were under the age of 18 were not sex workers. They were victims of sexual violence. His victims that were old enough to consent were still human beings and they did not deserve this. Regardless of their background, none of these women deserved the pain that Lorenzo inflicted upon them. I watched the interview with Piers Morgan in preparation for this episode and it amazes me how quickly he can go from friendly and kind presenting to absolutely cold, even in his old age. I cannot imagine the feeling those women felt when they noticed the humanity leaving his eyes. It is these women that should be remembered about this case. These women and the fact that predators are let loose every single day. A deal here, an agreement there, and so many other shortcomings led to Lorenzo being able to terrorize Kansas City for far too long. Lorenzo maintains his innocence to this day. He is serving a life sentence at the Crossroads Correctional Center in Missouri. And that is the story of the Kansas City Strangler and the science that finally stopped his reign of terror. From the heartland to your headphones. Stay curious, guys. <laughs>